Aw, snap, we have a sponsor. I want to be clear, this is a cool sponsor and you should, you really should just go check them out, like legit. BustedTees.com. They have a huge selection of geeky hats, t-shirts, stickers, and socks. Themes from Star Wars and Star Trek to Harry Potter, Pac-Man, Back to the Future, other video game references, just all kinds of geeky, cool culture. You're definitely going to find something there that speaks to your inner geek. Here's the deal. At checkout, you're going to see a spot to enter a code. Type in my name, that's Jason, followed by the number 25945. That's Jason25945. Get a pretty sweet discount. There's a link over on the website or head over to bustedtees.com and enter Jason25945 at checkout. Bustedtees.com. Designs that pop culture. Lyric is the story of a cursed town, of a missing musician, a forgotten soul, and a song that will bring them all together under its dark siren's call. Now, a warning. This book contains scenes of violence, suggestions of rape, and other material that might not be suitable for children or the faint of heart. But I hope you stick around, because there is an evil looking for a way out, and it's finding that way through a story and a song. Welcome back, my storied friends. It is I, Jason Emmett, and you are listening to Lyric. I'm glad you came back, because this week we're going to kick the show off proper. You are going to be introduced to a number of characters, and you're going to be introduced to a song. Okay, before we get started, real quick, hey, if you haven't done so already, please go to wherever you're listening and drop us a review. Takes you 30 seconds and it helps out a ton. I really appreciate those of you who already have based off the short story from last week. Feedback was positive and it means a lot. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from you after you hear, you know, the book itself. Hey, you can always find out more by going to the website. That is jasonimmit.com. That's E-M-M-I-T-T or lyricnovel.com. Either one will get you, you know, a little bit more information on me. All right, I'm not going to prolong this thing because we've got a story to get through together. So hold on, buckle up, and here we go. I present to you Lyric by Jason Emmett. Dedication. This book is dedicated to Joni. You always believed in me and always pushed me to write. Your advice and red ink made me a stronger writer. And without your guidance... I would have never had the perseverance to finish what I started. We miss you. Prologue It was there long before, before the chief and his people, before the early settlers, and before the factory. It was born in the void, in the darkness, in the time before light. When the first of them came, the ones who walked on four legs and the ones who crawled on their bellies, and the ones who flew in the sky. It was not pleased. It did not understand them, did not want them in its home, but it tolerated them. 
Then came the ones who walked on two legs, the ones who called themselves man. It watched them, studied them, and grew curious of them. Man believed they were the chosen, the rulers of this place, but these creatures were not like it. They were not eternal. They were not strong. Over time, it learned how to manipulate the creatures, how to control the ones who were dead. It began to feel, and it liked feeling, became obsessed with feeling, and it wanted more. Only, it was trapped inside this place, unable to leave. Using all of its strength, it began to call to them and lure them to it. It had a plan. It would take time, but that was okay. After all, it had all the time in the world. They came. Eventually, they began to call it Town, and it accepted that name. They began to build and to thrive, and the town let them, all the while growing stronger. It wanted to explore and feed and expand. It found their weaknesses, learned how to move amongst them, and began to form a plan, a way to set itself free. Chapter 1. Start from the Dark It all began with four simple words and a foolish idea. Dude, I got it. Chris heard the statement even before he heard the door crash open, and he knew that the intrusion meant Hunter had come through with his promise, just like he knew his little lemming, Emma, would be two steps behind his best friend as he descended the stairs into the basement. Chris didn't bother turning away from the TV or the game he was playing. You got it? Hunter hopped over the back of the ugly tan couch, dropping next to him. I got it. Your dad home? Chris hit pause, set his controller down, and looked up. Just as he suspected, Emma was standing, arms folded, next to where Hunter now sat. He said nothing to her, instead focusing his attention on Hunter. Nah, he and the stepper at the church group won't be home for hours. Have you listened yet? Hunter slid his hand into the pocket of his faded jeans and pulled out the red USB thumb drive. Nah, got it this morning. Dad hasn't left his laptop unattended in days, and he's been locking his office, but he left his keys sitting on the counter today, and I lifted them while he was in the shower. For all I know, it's complete shit. Chris took the drive and shrugged. Doesn't matter, my guy will pay for it. He stood up and walked over to the nightstand next to his bed and picked up the laptop sitting there. As he made his way back to the couch, he caught Emma's eye. She shot him a look. Hunter saw it, but he ignored it. Hunter knew Emma didn't like Chris. From the moment she and Hunter had started dating, the two had butted heads. He had assumed it was the usual jealous girlfriend versus best friend rivalry, but the truth ran much deeper. Earlier in the year, Chris and Emma had both attended Lauren Riley's birthday party. Chris and Lauren weren't friends, but he knew her boyfriend Jeremy pretty well, and that had snagged him the invitation. The party had been boring and Chris had considered leaving a number of times, but somehow the night wore on, as nights have a way of doing, and as the party began to dwindle, Chris found himself sitting around the fire pit with Jared Horton, 
Jared's girl Kelly, some weird chick he thought might be named Sarah or Tara, and Emma. They were all rambling on, caught in the loop of mundane topics that seemed important to teenagers, but really don't mean anything at all. Chris had noticed Emma. He knew her from school, although they had never spoken a word to one another, and he thought she was pretty cute. He thought she might be having an issue with one of her friends, and it was obvious she was nervous about something. She was drunk and alone, so Chris, being the gentleman he was, offered her a ride home. She had taken him up on the offer, only they didn't make it to her house. They wound up here, in Chris's basement. Chris lived in a nice enough house, three bedrooms, two full baths, but when he was 14, he had talked his dad into letting him move down into the basement. It hadn't been too difficult. Chris and his stepmother didn't get along very well, and he suspected she had encouraged the move to his father. She had likely seen the basement as a way to distance herself from her stepson, much the same as Chris had seen it as a way to distance himself from her. The basement was connected to the house by a stairway that led up into the hallway just off the kitchen, but it also had a separate entrance out to the back of the house. That separate entrance made it easy for Chris to sneak in and out. It also made it easy for him to slip other people in and out. Mostly, it had been friends, people like Hunter, when he'd stayed past curfew. But on at least two occasions, it had been a girl. Emma was the third, and talking her into coming had been easier than he'd expected. They hadn't had sex, although he thought maybe he could have convinced her to, but she had given him a hand job on the very couch where he now sat next to his blissfully unaware friend. It was a secret he had never shared with Hunter as he assumed Emma hadn't either. And had he felt guilty of that secret? At first, maybe. But the more he thought about it, the angrier it seemed to make him. Chris wasn't stupid. He knew what people thought of him. But he had been into Emma. And he thought maybe she was into him, too. Then, when he saw her at school the following Monday, and he asked her out, Emma shot him down. No explanation. Just a flat no. That rejection had been the first blow to his ego. The second blow came when she started dating Hunter a few months later. Now, Emma was in his room once again, standing next to the place the two of them had been sitting when she had slipped her hand down his pants and given his dick a good tugging. Emma stood there next to her boyfriend, eyes fixed on anything but Chris, and part of him wanted to laugh at her. She was uncomfortable, and he was glad. Chris motioned towards the end table next to Emma and gestured at the Bluetooth speaker on top of it. Flip that on, he said, not directly addressing Emma. Emma glanced down but didn't move. It was Hunter who reached over and pressed the power button. Chris opened his laptop, pushed the thumb drive in, and waited for the folder to pop up. When it did, he saw that it was marked Science Project and gave a smirk. He double-clicked the folder and saw an MP3 file labeled, Enter the End, Final Version. This it? He asked, hovering the mouse pointer over it. That's it, Hunter replied. Chris selected the MP3 icon and double-clicked once more. Later that night, as Hunter and Emma both lay awake in their beds, eyes scanning the darkness for anything that might move, they would reflect on those few seconds and recall 
how immediately apparent it had been that something wasn't right. No one spoke. It took a moment for the sound to find its way, traveling across the electrical highway that led it to the speaker. And in that brief span, that single breathless moment, the air in the room grew thick and strange. Uncomfortable thoughts began to swirl inside their heads. Chris Diamond was an asshole. That was common knowledge. He was always in trouble and hanging around with him was like inviting that trouble in. Emma had known that the night of Lauren's party. But alcohol can be a strong motivator for stupidity. She hadn't wanted to get drunk that night, but Bev had insisted she drink with her and that persuasive, if you were my friend you'd do it, Bev had about her. Emma hated liquor, but Bev poured them out a shot of tequila and handed it to her. Emma took it, leaned into it, and quivered. Even the smell was enough to make her gag, and she knew that drinking it was an epically bad idea. But peer pressure was a powerful weapon, and, not wanting to let her gal pal down, Emma lifted the glass and let the burn roll down her throat. She shuddered, and her eyes began to water. But there was something nice about it, too. And so, Bev poured another. It was somewhere near their fourth that Tom Barish, Bev's on-again, off-again, wandered over and convinced Bev, after all, peer pressure is a powerful weapon, to run off into the woods to, as Tom had elegantly put it, get sloppy. Quite intoxicated and without a ride, Emma found herself in a pickle. She sat there near the fire, cigarette clutched between her fingers, trying to act calm and failing. She stayed there for some time, letting the conversation fade into the background as she tried to figure out her next move. It had taken all her effort just to keep the world from spinning, and logic was at least 10 miles away from her current location. And that is when Chris Diamond dropped his camping chair alongside hers. Emma Hall had a problem, and she saw in his eyes that Chris Diamond knew it. He offered to take her home, but Emma wasn't stupid. She knew what Chris had in mind. He was cute enough, but he had a bad reputation, and Emma wasn't interested in becoming a part of it. She accepted the ride, but things quickly shifted, and Chris kept mentioning his house, saying they should stop by and let her buzz roll over before she went home. With the tequila haze still fogging her head, that logic almost made sense. And before she knew it, she found herself reluctantly nodding her head in agreement. They arrived at Chris's and crept around the back of the house and down into his room. After that, things played out as she had suspected they might. He offered her more to drink, which she declined, reminding him that she was supposed to be sobering up. He tried making conversation, stupid junk like school and the party, all the while edging his way closer to her. She figured he would make a move, and for a moment he seemed to be, but then his demeanor shifted. It's hard, you know, school I mean, the teachers are bad enough, I'm getting a freaking D in biology because Mr. Tanner wants to spend more time hanging out with the kids in class than actually teaching, but then well, my dad, he wanted me to play ball, you know? Thought I would be some star athlete like he was, but I just don't give a shit about stuff like that. 
I tried out just to make him happy, but I didn't make it. Dad lost his shit on me. Started saying stuff like, do you want to be a loser your whole life? And how do you ever expect to make it anywhere in life if you can't even put in enough effort to make the baseball team? Total crap. Emma was shocked. And not just because she had always thought of Chris as the jock type. After all, he did look the part. Slender and lean, the sort who would look natural standing at home plate with a bat perched over his shoulder. But mostly, she was shocked at how vulnerable he seemed. Chris had just opened up, had shown his feelings. Emma thought they had shared a moment, and she was touched. But as quickly as the moment had come, it was gone. Chris, as if aware he was acting like an actual human, and wanting none of it, slipped back into asshole mode. Guess life sucks, huh? Lucky for us, there are things that can make it all better. It was meant to be subtle, a playful comment to ease her. It failed. And then Chris shifted to full sex mode. He started pushing harder, dropping hints and making comments. It was awkward and uncomfortable, and Emma was pissed at herself for getting into a situation like this in the first place. Even drunk, she had known better. It was late and she was tired, and Chris seemed to be getting more aggressive. Nervous of where things were going, she had made the offer. And after it was done, he agreed to take her home. Chris hadn't forced himself on her, but Emma had still felt dirty and wrong, and when he approached her at school a few days later, she was not happy to see him. She blew him off, hoping her bluntness would get the idea across that she wanted nothing more to do with him, and it seemed to work. Chris began to ignore her in the halls, wouldn't even make eye contact. But then, three months later, she met Hunter. They met at an adoption event for the local animal shelter. Emma had known that Hunter and Chris were friends, and initially, it turned her away. But after a while, the two of them began to talk. She found that Hunter was sweet and smart, and the two of them had a lot in common. So when Hunter asked her to the movie the following weekend, she agreed. Emma had wanted to tell Hunter about what had happened with Chris, wanted to warn him about his friend, had intended to. But time has a way of slipping by, and before long, it seemed the moment had passed. She knew Hunter felt a kind of kindred connection to Chris because of their mothers. But Hunter was different when he was around Chris. He put up a front, and she didn't like it. Around Chris, Hunter pretended to hate school. But Emma knew he was getting A's in nearly every subject. And he had interests he kept from Chris, like his love of animals and his volunteer work. Emma knew the true Hunter, the kind-hearted boy who had only wanted to fit in. And she knew that Chris was a bad influence. The song began to play, jerking Emma's wandering thoughts back into the room. It was a low, pulsing bass rumble that they could feel inside their stomach. It was a grit-filled sound, dirty and foreboding that seemed to go on forever, vibrating and forcing their heartbeats to sync with its timing. Finally, the bass was broken by the rise of a synthesizer, giving them a reprieve. But it was short-lived. 
The bass was still there, underneath, and the synthesizer only added to their discomfort. They were flooded with an eerie melody, and for reasons they couldn't explain, they all began to fall into the clutches of sadness and dread. When the first words were spoken, they came breathy, distant, reverb-heavy, as if from the depths of a cavern. In the darkest part of dark, where I buried deep my heart, in the place forsaking light, in the giving birth of night. As the opening line reached his ears, Hunter felt his skin break out in goose flesh, and the hairs on his arm began to stand on end. It was wrong. Everything about it was wrong. He was sorry. Sorry for stealing the track from his father's laptop. Sorry for bringing it here and letting, no, making his friends listen to it. He wanted to cry, could feel the tears in his eyes, but something held them at bay as his mind sank further into the song. We're all tattered and undone. See the lady that will come, bringing with her what we fear when the final hour is near. Chris Diamond felt nausea. The dull ache of bile floating in his gut, threatening to kick up into his throat at any moment. The sort of sick when you knew that the only thing that would help you feel better is to lie down on a cold tile floor and wait for it to wash off you. What was he thinking? Why did he ever tell Hunter to steal a copy of the song? Money? It seemed so stupid now. And the jester in his hand holds the final grain of sand. Counting down, we slip away as we face our judgment day. and our minds, they walk the road where our sanity can't go. Still the lady guides the way as we hear the whispers say, Emma scanned the faces of the two boys on the couch. Their eyes were fixed on points somewhere in space, their minds dropping further and further as the music wormed its way into their brains. She wanted them to turn it off, and she suspected they wanted to turn it off, and yet no one was moving. No one was reaching towards the laptop to press the spacebar and end the nightmare chiseling itself into their subconscious. Emma's mind tried to get away, her thoughts racing towards a memory. That night, when Hunter had first mentioned this idea, it had been one of her favorite things, the two of them sitting on the white wicker couch on her back deck, her head against his chest, strawberry blonde hair cascading down him as the sky grew first burnt orange red, then midnight blue, and shimmering filled with stars. It was amazing, and she was falling in love with it the same way she was falling in love with a boy named Hunter Bridges. Chris has a guy who said he'd pay us two grand for a copy of the new Wilder Scott song. The words had come so matter-of-fact as they sat there watching the sun in its endless drop over the horizon. His statement broke her from her waking dream. What do you mean? She asked. Well, I told Chris about Wilder Scott recording at Dad's studio. 
I told him he was working on a new album. Sensing her anxiety, Hunter hesitated, then said, Anyway, he knows a guy. He said he would pay us two grand if we could get him a copy of the song early. Sounds like easy money, you know? Emma placed a hand on Hunter's chest. Hunter, I'm not sure you should. I mean, won't your dad get in trouble if it leaks? Hunter tried playing it off, repeating lines he had obviously been sold by his friend. It'll be all right. I mean, these things happen all the time. The publicity, it'll, it'll actually probably help him. I thought you weren't supposed to tell anyone he was recording. Hunter swallowed hard. He'd realized he'd made a mistake the moment he let it slip to Chris that local boy made good, goth musician Wilder Scott, had returned to the place where he'd cut his first demo. It wasn't supposed to be public knowledge, but Hunter had overheard his father on the phone discussing the arrangements. He told Emma, of course, because telling Emma had just seemed right. He had wanted to tell her. But telling Chris had been a slip of the tongue. Nothing more than a stupid brag. And now, here they were. The three of them. In Chris's basement. With this damn song. Twisting its way around them. I want it off. Emma's words were little more than a whisper. And neither of the boys flinched. They were lost, their heads filling with strange thoughts and their vision trapped by an unseen force as the song reached its chorus. Open the door, hear the words that she does say. Open the door, the final place our heads will lay and the night will full consume and your mind will start to bend. Open the door, enter the end. I want it to turn off. She was louder this time, but still the others did not react. Around them, the room appeared to be growing darker. The shadows on the walls seemed to slip off, melting into ooze and then slithering like serpents, merging around them only to be replaced by new shadows, thick and murky. Shadows that filled every nook and cranny, shadows engulfing the room like a fog rolling in from the ocean. It was happening, but at the same time it wasn't happening, and Emma was unsure of what was real and what was in her mind. Can we please turn it off? This time, Hunter seemed to hear her. His head shook slightly, and his eyes shifted in her direction. Huh? The word mumbled out of him, as if half in, half out of sleep. Hunter, I don't like it. I want to turn it off. Her voice was raising now, trying to climb above the volume of the song. Hunter heard her, but he still did not move. Emma no longer believed that this might just be her imagination. She saw them the shadows, as they grew solid and began to take form. There were shapes and figures on the walls that didn't belong, images that came from dancing creatures and lurking demons not yet visible to the eye, but surrounding every corner of the room. As the jester dances by, see the blackened midnight sky. He will bring with him the snake, and the rest we will forsake. This is where I long to be, in mine's darkest destiny. I have prayed and I have cried. 
and my prayers, they have died. Chris was trapped inside the music, and Hunter was somewhere in between the basement and the darkest melancholy of the bleak melody. Emma wanted it to end. Hunter, please! She saw something out of the corner of her eye, something moving outside the window to her left. The window was recessed and sitting at ground level, so it wasn't a full view, but Emma was able to make out the part that was. Gray, rotting, almost skeletal. It was a foot, and it was coming towards the door. Emma began to panic. Hunter! She screamed his name. Em? He was disoriented, looking around as if seeing Chris's bedroom for the first time. At the top of the stairs, the door opened and something stepped inside. The sound of descending footfalls followed, only they were slow, one methodical step at a time. Emma's head snapped around as that rotting foot dropped below the overhang and into sight. Another step, and she saw a dress, once yellow perhaps, but now sepia, stained, filthy, and in tatters. And that was enough. Emma knew she did not want to see any more, knew that if she did, her mind would slip free from sanity. Now, she was screaming. Turn it off! Chris seemed to be phasing in and out, solid one moment and nearly translucent the next, and the thought hit her that wherever he was going, Hunter would go next. Instinct took over. She grabbed the speaker from the table, feeling the hard plastic cube in her fist, and she pitched it across the room. It smashed against the wall, erupting in a shower of broken black shrapnel. As if a switch had been flipped, the music went silent and the shadows drew back to their normal spaces. Emma turned to the stairs and the figure was gone. Hunter jumped to his feet. Emma! Had any of it been real? Emma thought. Of course it hadn't. The song, the setting, the night, it had all just played into my imagination. Only she didn't quite believe that. Em? Hunter said once more. And this time, she began to weep. Hunter took hold of her and pulled her close to his chest. She was scared. Hell, he was scared. And all he wanted was to feel her, to touch her, and know that she was there. With the music gone, Chris was yanked back into reality, his head reeling from the mental whiplash of it all. It took a second for him to focus, and when he did, his attention fell to the carnage near the wall. Black plastic shards mixed with pieces of green circuit board and wire. The fuck did you do? Chris said, surveying the wreckage. Hunter motioned to him without releasing his sobbing girlfriend. Not now, Chris. Not now, Chris began. She busted my speaker. Hunter glared at him. I'll buy you a new fucking speaker. He reached out his free hand. Give me the flash drive. What? Chris asked. The flash drive, 
Hunter responded. Give it to me. Dude, we're going to sell it, remember? Hunter shook his head. No, we aren't selling it. I'm going to delete it. The fuck you are, Chris said. I'm going to sell this thing with or without. Hunter let go of Emma and spun around to face him. You aren't selling shit. It wasn't a request. I want the damn flash drive. And there it was. Chris thought about rebutting, but he saw that look in Hunter's eyes almost daring him. Chris tried to shoot back a look of his own, then thought better of it and let it falter. The truth was, he was scared, and that fear had crept into his stomach, sludged its way into his throat and mouth, and was now resting behind his glassy pupils. He took a beat to examine Hunter's face to see if that fear was resting there too, and for the briefest of moments, something crossed between them, a sort of dark understanding, and then it was gone. Chris found his courage once more, or at least the ability to fake it. He leaned over and removed the drive. With a glare that said, fuck you, buddy, fuck you and your dumb bitch you rode in on, he dropped the drive in Hunter's outstretched palm. Hunter slid the drive back into his pocket, then took Emma's hand. Come on, let's go. They didn't say another word to Chris Diamond, would in fact never say another word to him. And as they climbed the stairs and stepped out into the cool autumn night, Emma couldn't help but scan the gloom for signs of movement. And what was she expecting anyway? Did she think she would see whatever had been attached to that rotten leg as it came rushing from the darkness? It was silly. Things like that weren't real. Emma knew that, but there was something different about the air now, something dense and threatening. They made it to Hunter's car without incident, but in her gut, Emma knew that something was coming. After they were gone, Chris sat alone in his room for quite a while, before finally deciding he was hungry. He got up and walked the distance of the room to the stairs on the opposite side from where the couch sat. He told himself things were fine, that Emma had freaked out for no reason, and Hunter was too much of a pussy to stand up to her. But telling himself that wasn't enough to shake that feeling of unease that had crept over him. That feeling only seemed to grow stronger as he started up the narrow stairwell and stepped through the doorway into the hall off the kitchen. With just the light over the sink to guide his way, the house was dark. He flipped a switch as he turned the corner and the chandelier above the kitchen island flickered to life. He was hoping the illumination would ease his tension, but it offered little consolation. He was unsettled. He would never admit it to Hunter, assuming he even talked to him after what he just pulled. But deep down, he had been oddly relieved when Hunter had taken the flash drive. When that song was playing, images had entered his head. Memories he would have preferred to keep buried. Somehow, that music had gotten inside of him, had made him experience something from his past. He was seven, and his mother had taken him to a department store in town. She told him it was called Sears, 
and that both frightened and excited him. Because he had seen a movie once on the Saturday sci-fi feature where a group of evil seers had tricked the hero into a trap. They had been witches, only they looked almost bat-like with large leathery wings that draped their bodies like a cloak. They offered visions of the future, and travelers would come to them hoping to receive guidance, but for the most part, it meant death, as the seers would pull people into their wings, crush them, and then feed on their bones. The movie had given Chris nightmares for a week, but he had also sort of loved it. The store had not been as exciting as the movie, and Chris had found himself bored. So he began to pretend he was in the movie, and he was the brave hero. The store transformed, the racks of garments changing into a maze, a labyrinth filled with secret chambers and hidden pitfalls. As he explored, Chris began to drift further and further away from his mother, hiding in the racks of clothes as he made his way along the corridors, dodging the other women as they perused the shelves, his mind twisting them into goblins and trolls, seeking to thwart his quest. There was one woman, a rather rotund lady in gaucho pants, and sporting a t-shirt which didn't quite manage to cover the lower half of her stomach. That shirt stood out in his memory. That shirt, which was an offensive color of neon pink, embossed with gold glitter letters informing people that she was just too sexy. She walked with heavy footfalls, small grunts, snorts, and snuffles escaping her as she moved. And so, too sexy, became the Minotaur, guarding the treasure waiting for him at the center of the maze. She passed by, and Chris hid, taking refuge in a circle of nearby dresses. He would wait for the creature to move on before commencing with his quest, only she didn't move on. Not for quite some time, and as he sat there, warm and enclosed, his eyes began to grow heavy, and before he knew what had happened, Chris Diamond had fallen into deep, soundless sleep. When Chris woke up, the world was shrouded in night. He stepped from his refuge, emerging from the garments like a bear, stepping from his cave after a long hibernation. There is a silence that comes from emptiness, a sound that pulls the air from a room and leaves a slight hum in your ear that you can never quite pinpoint the origin of. The store was that sort of empty, and at first, he thought he must still be sleeping, that this was just a dream. But as his eyes adjusted to his surroundings, he knew better. He began to move his way down the rows of slacks and blouses, each hesitant footstep compacting the dread he felt as he edged himself closer to the center aisle, closer to the center of the maze. He moved out of instinct not really sure where he was going, not sure what he was going to do once he got there. And that silence, that empty, deafening silence, it continued to plague him. How is it so quiet? He could remember thinking. The desolation was so overwhelming. He could feel his heart thumping in his ears, his breath threatening to betray his location to whatever monsters 
might be laying in wait. He wanted to cry out for his mother, but he knew she wasn't there. No one was there. Chris had fallen asleep and had awakened in another realm, a realm of black and sorrow and fear. He was alone. Chris stepped past a display of sunglasses, and his heart went to ice. In front of him stood a figure, long and thin, bony fingers reaching for him. He was paralyzed, his head screaming at him to run, but his feet glued in place. As he stared at it, it locked into his gaze. It was a cold glare, wide, lifeless eyes that bored into his soul. But the thing that really got him, the thing that would implant itself deep in his psyche and forever haunt his nightmares, was the smile. It stretched across the face, teeth bared and void of any real human emotion. A distorted smirk, unnervingly oversized for the face it inhabited. And as the thing peered at him, reaching and grinning, he thought he heard a raspy laugh, echo from lips unmoving. It was going to grab him and pull him in, feeding off his fear. And once it had him, it would never let him leave. Chris's eyes swelled with tears, and he felt something warm run down his leg. He was going to die, and he knew it. Only, he hadn't died. That thing, that evil ancient creature, hadn't killed him. It had wanted him. Chris was certain of that, had wanted to snatch him up and drag him off into its lair. But something happened to stop it before it was able to. It was the harsh yellow light from the overhead fluorescence that had thwarted the troll. A light which, much like that over the kitchen island, should have brought relief, and yet it did not. Seeing the creature for what it truly was only managed to intensify his fear. It stood there motionless and yet somehow drawing closer with each passing breath. He could see now that it wore a plaid dress, the sort of dress his mother had called a summer dress. The dress was cheery and bright, a fact that only added to the macabre nature of the grinning wraith. Chris was still lost in that smile much as he had been lost in the song, when someone called out his name. He heard it, a voice he didn't recognize, a voice he would later find out belonged to the store manager, a small, stocky man whose name Chris never learned. That voice had broken into the nightmare, but that voice wasn't strong enough to pull him back into the real world completely. And then someone swept him up into their arms and began to carry him away. Even as they did, Chris's sight never left that plastic grin. His mother and father arrived 20 minutes later, as Chris sat in the break room of the department store next to a frantic, balding man and several police officers. They had searched for him for nearly two hours. How many times must they have walked right past him, sleeping there in the rack of clothes? Had they called him? Probably they had, only he hadn't heard those calls. 
Eventually, his inconsolable mother was escorted home. She had wept uncontrollably, thinking that her boy had been kidnapped, and she had wept nearly as hard once he had been found. When Chris had stepped from the stand of dresses, he had triggered the silent alarm. The store manager, who was sitting in his recliner, trying not to throw up with the knowledge that a boy had gone missing from his store, received a phone call from the alarm company and had known immediately it was Chris. He picked up the phone, first dialing the police, and then Chris's parents. A year and a half later, three weeks after Chris's ninth birthday, his mother was diagnosed with stomach cancer. She fought as best she could, but the chemo drained her. Over the next seven months, the disease ate away at her, and she grew weak. Her eyes were slowly shifting to a dull cigarette-stained yellow, her body becoming little more than a husk, a shell draped in loose skin. Chris watched her deteriorate, watched as death drew closer with each passing day. And then came the last day, the day his father picked him up from school and told him they needed to go. His memory of that day was fragmented, broken, gray-colored memories like faded Polaroids tossed in a box and left forgotten for decades. He recalled standing in the colorless waiting room as a group of his relatives stood speaking in hushed tones all around him. Occasionally, one of them would turn to Chris, their mouths smiling while their eyes frowned. Chris had hated them for that. Then his father took his hand, and looking down at his son, he said, It's time, Christopher. There was no sound as he walked the sterile hallway to the room where his mother lay. He could recall the door, wooden, with the brushed metal lever handle. And although he thought it had been closed, he didn't remember his father opening it. There were memories of blurry figures, of people inside surrounding the bed with the cage-like structure on the sides, and a muffled silence, as if he were underwater. Mostly, he remembered the smell, clean and void of life. It was like rubbing alcohol and pine, and it burned his nose slightly as he inhaled. He took it all in. The smeared images of aunts, uncles, and doctors, the acidic odor, the muted voices, and then he saw it, the being in the bed. He only saw her for a moment, but it was enough to etch itself into his brain forever. She could barely move, and what small movements she did make were robotic, jerky, and lashed with pain. She noticed her son and pushed through that pain, offering him her best smile. Her skin was pulled tight on her face, and she reached a gaunt hand towards Chris, and Chris saw what she had become. As she extended her bony fingers, Chris realized that his mother was being consumed. Taken by the creature from the store, a smile stretching across her face, teeth bared and void, of any human emotion. A distorted smirk unnervingly oversized for the face it inhabited. He burst into tears and rushed out of the room. Chris never saw her alive again, and he was haunted by the thought of her last image of him scared, her son sobbing 
so frightened by his own mother that he couldn't even touch her hand and comfort her. Those were the memories still whirlpooling through his head as he opened the refrigerator and pulled out a pack of bologna and a jar of mayo. He tossed them on the counter, grabbed a loaf of bread, and began preparing a sandwich. As he finished it and took an oversized bite, he heard something. It was a faint, rasping sound from the darkened foyer behind him. Heart escalating slightly, he spun around on his heels and peered into the abyss, expecting movement. But after a moment passed and nothing happened, his jittered nerves began to calm. That damn song did a number on me, he thought, drawing in a breath. It was crazy. The tone of the song had been a little unsettling, sure, but it shouldn't have affected him this much. And what was up with Hunter and his limbing Emma? They were acting completely nuts. Chris was sure Emma was the reason Hunter had been acting so lame lately, and now not only had that bitch busted his speaker, but she'd cost him a thousand dollars. He took another bite, and the sound came again. This time, his brain recognized it. It was the sound of something sliding across the wood floor of the hallway. He set his sandwich down and took a reluctant half-step forward, and it came again. He strained his eyes as if opening them wider would somehow allow him to see in the dark, but it was little use. He was freaked out, sure, but he knew he wasn't just hearing things. There was something out there, and whatever it was, it was moving closer. Logic told Chris there was probably a reasonable explanation, just as logic told him to cross the room and turn on the rest of the lights. But logic has little room in our worlds when we're alone at night, facing off against something unknown and unseen. And what he wanted to do, what his gut was yelling at him to do, was to hurry back down into the basement and turn on everything, the lights, the television, even the damn computer, anything that would help offer a distraction until his father and stepmother got home. And then Chris thought he saw movement. A shape, gray on top of the black, and a thought popped into his head. Is that a person? It moved again, and now he could almost make out a form, tall and lean, before it merged into the murk once more. He could feel the pulse in his chest, and he retreated the half-step back into the kitchen. No, his head began to say, it's not human. It's something that looks almost human, but not quite. Something with an evil, stretched grin and long, probing fingers. Another step, and he thought he saw it more clearly now. That settled it. Chris made up his mind to run, bolting downstairs and then out to his car when another sound broke the air. It was a sound that reminded him of Christmas? The sound of jingling bells, and it was coming from behind him. With a start, he twisted around, but the kitchen was empty. Empty, except for the smell. Thick, damp, and pungent, like a wet dog with a festering wound. Feeling a little queasy and confused, 
and believing he might be losing his mind, Chris shifted back around, determined to turn on the lights and extinguish these irrational fears. He hadn't heard her approach. She was mere inches in front of him, and somehow he had never heard her approach. He saw her face, gray, green, and rotten, with chunks of loose flesh clinging to it. Her lips were waning and drawn back, showing a broken and tar-black sneer. Her eye sockets were hollow, the entrance to an oubliette filled with nightmares. And as she leaned into him, Chris felt himself falling into that void. She reached out and took his face into her hands. Chris Diamond tried to scream, but his voice, like his mind, seemed to vanish. It was ripped away as dagger-like nails sank into his flesh, drawing him towards his fate. There was a hiss, and once again he heard the jingling of tiny bells behind him, bells and a perverse, high-pitched chuckle. The lady opened her mouth as her thumbs slid up towards Chris's eyes. Her bone-edged fingers glided into the warm, wet orbits as her mouth covered his. Had anyone been there to bear witness, it might have looked like a pair of ghastly lovers embraced in a passionate kiss, but what happened next was nothing like a kiss. The scream finally managed to work its way up through Chris's throat, but it only lasted a fraction of a second before the foul, snarled teeth bit down on his tongue. Chris tried to push her away, but her vice grip hands were locked around his skull. As she pushed her thumbs deeper, his head was filled with a slight pop. The pain was unbearable. He began to twitch and moan. There was another pop, and the pain washed away. Later, when his father and stepmother arrived home, they knew right away something was off. There was a presence in the atmosphere, and that sort of inexplicable fear you had as a child, ascending a set of stairs out of a cellar, that feeling of the unknown lurking behind you, that sense of unrealized terror that something is there waiting to pounce the moment we turn our back. The first thing they saw was the sandwich, half-eaten, still sitting on the kitchen island, a lonely message of tragedy. There was blood on the floor, blood and something like pus, white and foamy. But Chris was not there. Instead, they found him in his room. He was sitting upright on the couch, and to see him from behind, one might have thought he was watching TV or maybe preparing to catch up on a few viral videos courtesy of the laptop positioned next to him. The front view, however, told a much bleaker tale. He held in his right hand a broken, bloody, shard of busted speaker. They found the severed remainder of his tongue lodged into his mouth. The autopsy that would come later called it a suicide, claiming Chris had used the remnants of the speakers to dig out his own eyes and had likely bitten through his tongue as a result of the immense amounts of pain. The coroner 
never seemed to question just how difficult a task this would have been, nor did they try and account for the stain on the tile upstairs or the sandwich left mid-feast. They simply filed their report. Well, we did it. We made it through part one together. Chapter one, part one. Don't worry, there's a little bit more to chapter one coming up next week. And hopefully you guys all come back. Hey, feel free to leave me some feedback. Again, if you haven't had the chance, please leave a review wherever you're listening. And please, please, please share. If you're not following me on social media, I'm out there. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Twitter. You can look for Jason Emmett on either of those. You should be able to find me. And uh, you can leave me feedback through any of those as well. Next week, we're going to come back. You're going to hear the conclusion of what happened to Chris. The story is going to unfold, guys. And I promise it's just getting started. So if you like what happened today, well, there's going to be more of that. A lot more. Some real creepy shit, I promise. Hey, also, if you can, visit the sponsors. Patronize them. Helps out a lot. Plus, you get a pretty cool deal, and they offer some really cool stuff. I'm really trying to make a go of this. And I, I think I've mentioned before, I have other novels that I'm currently working on. So if this works out, then I'm going to give you more. So, you know, if you like it, help it. All right, that's it. I appreciate you guys. This is Jason Emmett signing off. Until next we speak. Oh.